0: The show begins! Hello, inventors, builders, tinkerers, and fellow motor goaters! Kapow the Mechanical Pygmy Goat here, podcasting from Lucy Wow's Barn in Pflugerville! I have to tell you, I sure do enjoy being Lucy Wow's sidekick. With Lucy, not only do I get to eat all the sunglasses and bolts I want, but I get to be a part of inventing new things every day. I love inventing. It's a big part of who I am. In fact, since Lucy Wow invented me, you could say an invention is what I am. The thing about inventions is we often take on a life of our own. Inventions are always changing, evolving, being innovated, and improved upon. Sometimes, an invention that plays a big role in your life began as something totally different. Which brings us to today's invention, Netflix. For hundreds of millions of people all around the world, Netflix is the place to go for movies and shows. Its services alone constitute over 15% of all the world's internet bandwidth. Netflix is such a big deal that there are even ice cream flavors named after it. (laughs) And you don't get any bigger than dessert if you ask me. But Netflix hasn't always been a streamer. In fact, when Netflix started out, there was no such thing as streaming. Netflix began as a company that sent DVDs to people by non-electronic mail. So let's take a look at how a DVD in the mailbox turned into an app on your phone with more than 200 million subscribers around the world. Netflix was founded in 1997 by Mark Randolph and Reed Hastings in Scotts Valley, California. Reed had served in the Peace Corps as a high school math teacher in Swaziland before founding a software company that was worth 700 million dollars. But just because you make a lot of money doesn't mean you don't carpool. Reed commuted to work every day with his vice president, Mark Randolph. It was during this commute that they came up with the idea to start a company that would mail out DVDs. You see, back then, if you wanted to see a movie at home, you had to buy it or go rent it from a video store. Basically, you had to go out to stay in before Netflix. These two guys wanted to change all that, but they were worried. What if the DVDs broke in the mail? So they tested their idea by mailing DVDs from work to their homes in Santa Cruz. Sure enough, the movies arrived in perfect condition. It had worked! Inspired by this success, they went ahead and started Netflix. You probably figured it out already, but the name Netflix is a combination of net, as in internet, and flicks, as in flicks or movie. Sometimes a simple name is the best name, but a name like Kapow is even better. Netflix launched in April of 1998. They only had a few people working for them and just under a thousand movies at the time. Here's how it worked. Users ordered movies on the Netflix website and received DVDs in their mailbox. When they were finished watching a movie, they would mail it back to Netflix in the envelopes provided. Rentals cost around $4 each, plus a $2 postage charge. Users could keep the DVDs for as long as they liked, but they could only rent a new movie after returning their existing one. It didn't take long before they were a hit. People loved opening the mail and finding a new movie waiting for them. By the year 2000, Netflix was very popular and had started to cut into the business of DVD rental stores, the biggest of which was called Blockbuster. Since they were in the DVD rental business, Reed and Mark went to Blockbuster and asked to partner up. <laughs> had Blockbuster agreed, they could have bought Netflix for $50 million. Netflix is now worth over 250. dollars Billion dollars, but the CEO of blockbuster just smiled and laughed at them whoops now I don't even have a physical mailbox right now. I ate it for breakfast last week, but I still have Netflix So what happened well in 2007? There was a new kind of technology that Netflix decided to play with it was called streaming and it allowed people to watch movies on Their computers without having a physical DVD Netflix called their new streaming service watch now It was a huge shift in the company's business model. So they tested it first, using only a thousand movies, only on PCs, and on Internet Explorer. If you had a Mac, you were out of luck. They limited the number of hours of streaming to 18 hours a month. 18 hours? I stream that much every hour! Wait, oh, that can't be right. Anyway, back then, no one knew how big streaming would get. People didn't even know if anyone would want to watch a show on a computer. But guess what? They did! You did! By the end of the year, Netflix had 7.5 million streaming customers. They still sent out DVDs in the mail as well. But the company was evolving, changing, innovating, kapowing! With streaming, people didn't have to wait for the DVDs to be mailed anymore. With no one waiting, they started watching a lot more content. Netflix decided rather than just renting out other people's movies and TV shows, they should just make some of their own. So in 2012, they released their first original series called Lilyhammer. It was a small hit, but successful enough that they made another show called House of Cards. And that one was an enormous hit. Soon Netflix was making more shows and movies than anyone. And those 7.5 million streamers had been joined by a couple hundred million of their friends. Netflix just kept growing, and like all things that grow, changing. It just goes to show, when you invent something, that's only the beginning. Inventions are always evolving, changing, getting bigger, and getting better. Just like you! Oh hi there! It's me, Kapow! The Mechanical Pygmy Goat, podcasting from an old barn in Pflugerville. You may know me from the Lucy Wow Podcast, where Lucy and I have amazing adventures in the world of building. But if not, let me give you a quick rundown of who I am. My name is Kapow. I was invented by Lucy Wow. My parts are all tools, so as long as I'm around, you can fix or build anything. And last but not least, I can play music out of my butt. (laughs) Yes, you heard that right. It's been said that with great power comes great responsibility. So in your part, Boombox, it's your responsibility to know about music. I make it my business to know all the artists and genres of every era. From Madonna to Mariachi, from Bolero to Beyonce, I know my tunes. But even if you don't have a body part that plays polka, I bet you still know about K-pop. In the last few years, K-pop has left its home in Korea and reached every corner of the planet. But how did it get so big? And how was it invented in the first place? Well, let's take a look. K-pop comes from South Korea where before the 90s, most of their national entertainment was just an imitation of American or Japanese pop culture, but Following South Korea's lift on travel restrictions for its citizens in 1988, it became easier for South Korean artists to travel and see new sorts of art from all over the world. This inspired them to try new things, and soon South Korea was home to something totally new, K-pop. Let's take a quick break to talk about the term K-pop. Short for Korean pop, this term became popular in the 2000s. Previously, South Korean pop was called gayo. Another term you should know is stans. This is what K-pop fans are called. Stans are notoriously obsessive about keeping up to date and supporting their favorite groups. Now, back in the 90s, a trio called Seo Taiji and the boys were the first artists to combine American rap with Korean lyrics. They premiered this new sound on a TV talent competition, but it didn't go great. They were too new and the judges didn't know what to make of them. But unlike the judges, the audience at home loved them. So even though they lost the talent competition, Seo Taiji and the boys became immediate stars. Their song, I Know, shot to number one on South Korean charts and stayed there for 17 weeks. Soon, copycats began streaming in as the entertainment industry tried to churn out the next big thing. This was the beginning of what's known in Korea as idol culture. Idol culture was centered around artists who were recruited during their teen years and then trained by companies to dance, sing, and do just about everything else. Their entire image was created and controlled by corporations to appeal to the biggest possible fan base. These corporate-made idols exploded in popularity in the 2000s. Idols came in various flavors, but the all-male K-pop idol groups were generally the most popular. Then, in 2012, Idol culture was changed by an unlikely source, a K-pop rapper named Psy. The lead single from his sixth studio album, Gangnam Style, went viral, becoming the first YouTube video to reach 1 billion views ever. A song about the lifestyle of the Gangnam district of Seoul, Psy played up the imagery of a perfect girlfriend from the rich area, paired it with insanely catchy rap lyrics, and a music video that was pure silliness. (laughs) People loved it. Gangnam Style was so far removed from the refined idol image other groups had worked so hard to portray that it changed everything. The evolution of K-pop continues today, where it has culminated in the success of one of the biggest sensations from South Korea of all time, BTS. The chart-topping Septet has broken records and stereotypes in both their home country and abroad, making huge strides for the K-pop industry as a whole. For instance, in May 2018, BTS's album debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard 200 chart. I'm a huge BTS stand, by the way. <laughs> BTS has made it their business to sing about more serious matters than the earlier idols. Matters such as relationships, societal pressures, and having a dream and pursuing it. The group also challenges K-pop history with their willingness to talk about things like mental health and politics they've achieved a level of international fame that constantly produces trending Twitter hashtags and a truly massive army of fans. Along with BTS, groups like the all-female Blackpink have taken K-pop beyond the idea of corporate idol creations and into the realm of international pop artists. Y'all know I stand for Blackpink. K-pop is now ranked at number six among the top 10 music markets worldwide thanks to BTS and Blackpink and shows no sign of slowing down. Oh, hi there. It's me, Kapow, the mechanical pygmy goat, beaming into your ears all the way from Pflugerville. You probably know me best as Lucy Wow's sidekick and as a world champion eater of socks, shoes, and bottles of glue. But what you haven't ever gotten to do is see me which is a shame because I'm very handsome. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, there are some nice pictures of sunsets and mountains and babies, but all of those pictures would be better if there was a mechanical pygmy goat playing music out of their butt in the background. So for me, today's invention, the selfie, is very important. Without the selfie, I couldn't take a picture of myself, and that would mean I'd have no pictures with any flair, any style, any kapow. In November 2013, the word selfie beat out the word Bitcoin to become the Oxford English Dictionary's much coveted Word of the Year. Ooh. The term is defined as a photograph that one has taken of oneself, typically with a smartphone or webcam, and uploaded to a social media website. Ah. The first use of the term was on a public forum in September 2002. An Australian man took a photo of himself and called his post a selfie. The man's identity has remained a mystery, which is too bad because that picture made history. Ah, the first recorded selfie. (laughs) Many linguists have analyzed the term and believe that it is very typical of the Australian language to shorten words and end them with E. Other examples include Barbie for barbecue, Fiery for firefighter, Posty for postman, and Ozzy for Australian. So it makes sense for an Aussie to come up with the name Selfie. But while the word Selfie is new, the idea isn't. The first Selfie, referred to as a self-portrait at that time, has been credited to Robert Cornelius in 1839. Cornelius was one of the American pioneers of photography and produced a photo of himself. The camera was much slower back then. He had to uncover the lens, run in front of it, and hold his pose between three and 15 minutes just to take it. Oh, a 15 minute selfie? How do you keep from blinking? It was a lot of work, but once he'd done it, everyone wanted to try it. In 1914 Grand Duchess Anastasia of Russia took a picture of herself in front of a mirror to send to a friend, becoming one of the first teenagers to take their own picture and the first one to send it out. Ooh. The first selfie taken in the way we do it today, with the photographer holding the camera at arm's length, was in December 1920. The five men who took the photo were the main photographers of the Byron Company a photography studio founded in Manhattan in 1892 that is still in business today. Another man took the photograph of the men documenting the momentous occasion. The image shows the five men standing on the roof of the Marseille studio holding a camera that was so heavy, it required two of the men to hold it up. Ah. Thankfully, there have been many new inventions and improvements to photography that allow for easier selfie taking. The availability of selfie timers in the late 1880s allowed for an ease for creating self-portraits, since it gave five to 10 seconds for the subject to position themselves in the shot. The launch of the portable camera in 1900 led to self-portraiture becoming a widespread technique. When instant cameras such as Polaroid became more affordable in the 1970s, it encouraged photographers to take more self-portraits, since the camera was very light and could easily be held at arm's length. It also printed the picture quickly and provided instant gratification. I love instant things. Instant rice, instant oatmeal, instant gratification, instant food in my mouth. Then the smartphone came along. The release of the Sony Ericsson mobile phone in 2003 introduced the first front-facing phone camera, and it allowed for the easiest selfie taking to date. In 2015, the selfie stick was invented, which allowed for more of the background and additional people to be included in the selfie. As for the sharing of selfies, the internet has helped a lot with that. I mean, the internet is filled with selfies. A search on Instagram retrieves almost 270 million images uploaded with hashtag selfie. A selfie taken by Ellen DeGeneres during the 86th Academy Awards broke the record of most retweeted image, being shared more than 2 million times before the ceremony was over and causing Twitter to collapse for a short time. Ah. Now, the selfie isn't all fun and games. Some people have been hurt while taking them, which is why you should always be careful when you're posing. You also need to be respectful of where you are. Because some things are about being experienced in the moment, and you can't focus on the moment when you're focusing a camera. But at the same time, having a record of where you've been and what you've done can be great. Especially if there's a mechanical pygmy goat in the selfie. (laughs) Well folks, we've come to the end of another Kapow's Power of Invention podcast. Come back tomorrow when I'll be covering more inventors and inventions. And don't forget, Friday's Listener Mailbag. If you've got a question about the world of Go Kid Go Shows, Pflugerville, or Lil Ol' Me, send it to Kapow at gokidgo.com. You might get your question read live on the show. It's very exciting. Have yourself an inventive day. Make something, build something, go big, and then go bigger. Until next time, this is Kapow signing off. Go Kid Go!